I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I want to welcome to The Literary Life, Michelle Harper. Michelle has written a remarkable book, a remarkable memoir called The Beauty and Breaking. Michelle has worked in emergency rooms for more than a decade at various hospitals, including Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx and in the emergency department at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Philadelphia. She's a graduate of Harvard and uh, the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. Michelle, it's wonderful to have you on The Literary Life this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of all the books I've read this year, this is one that cracked me open in a way that none other really did. And partially it's because of how beautifully written it was. And I'm always taken by books um, that are able to utilize words in a way that uh, get right to the heart of, you know, of the insightfulness of what you're trying to get across. So in many ways, this for me was extremely cathartic as well. Mm. I imagine it was for you too. So how are you doing now? I mean, you know, you started writing this book way before this pandemic, I'm sure. And then the pandemic puts it all in a kind of different perspective where we've come to, you know, we've come to revere emergency room doctors in a way that we never had before. Um, I thank you for all the work you do and you're, you. you're doing. How are you and where are you and what's happening now? Yeah. So well, thank you so much. And I'm well uh, physically and I'm 
grateful for that because we are in the midst of a pandemic, um, still working in the emergency department. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to help people there and for a certain amount of job security that a lot of people don't have. So, so I do have a lot of gratitude right now. Um, and it's, it is a strange time. Um, you're right. I was writing this book. I started writing this book so many years ago and of course couldn't have foreseen that there would be a pandemic and then it would come out during this time, which is, there's really nothing good. I can, very few things positive um, have come out of this pandemic. I will say that the timing of the book and speaking about these issues around healing and structural violence, whether it's structural racism or misogyny, that the timing for having these discussions uh, is, is good because I think we're, there's a different energy going on. This pandemic has laid bare so many of the problems that as a society we've been struggling with. And I think that now, in a way that hasn't been the case maybe for at least some decades, there's an energy around not only having the discussions, but also making, uh, making the change to address them. I think you're absolutely right. I can't remember a time in my life where there's been such serious discourse yeah. around all of this. Usually there's a couple of you know, words said and then it's swept right. under the rug, right. but that hasn't happened this time. And, mm -hmm. and it's voices like yours that have allowed this to, to come to the fore. So you say that you started this a long time ago. What was the impetus for writing this initially? So my impetus was, you know, and, and for, for those who haven't read the book, it's the memoir, uh, it's a memoir, The Beginning Breaking, and I discuss challenges that I overcame in my own life, um, growing up in a family with a father who was a batterer, and the healing, my own journey to healing from that. And then it's interwoven between patient stories and each one explores a, a patient's own journey of healing. And so, you know, I think back why I went into emergency medicine and, and I recognize that clinically I can help in the ER, one person at a time, one family, maybe one community. But with writing, it's different. And I have all these these, these stories, these experiences that have stayed with me throughout the years. And I wanted to put pen, actually it started as literally pen to paper, and amplify these voices that are usually silenced and, and show, give some examples of how if, if we choose it, we can heal ourselves. And if we choose to do that, we can support others and their own process of healing. So that's why I wrote it. All those years you have ago. a wonderful line in the book where you mm -hmm. say, brokenness can be a remarkable gift. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I feel that way. And, I, you know, I, I opened the book with um, referencing a Japanese art of kintsukoroi where pottery is broken and then it's repaired by an amalgam of precious metals. And so, you know, the thinking is that we're not going to hide these scars. We're not going to hide the experience that in, in the mending where, where these cracks are highlighted with precious metals, amalgam of precious metals, it's that much more beautiful 
for what it's been through, for what it's survived now. Mm. And that's not to romanticize trauma. I'm not like sadistic or masochistic, but I do recognize that part of the deal of being human is that we will have challenges. We will have things that break us. And so then the question is, what's the next move? What's the next best decision? How do we get through it? And then what do we do after it? Do you think that some of that, I imagine it did, and you write about mm-hmm. it, that, that that directed you toward the ER to a large extent. Because the ER, is, you know, I've been in the ER enough with my own family to understand that of all of what happens in a hospital, it is in some ways the most democratic of all places. Mm-hmm. You never know who you're going to get, and you never know really where they come from. And you even write about people who weren't terribly nice. Oh, yeah. To work with, you know. So it's, it's catch as catch can, basically. And, um, you know, that, that falls in with your other line where you say, by healing ourselves, we heal each other. And by healing each other, we hear, heal ourselves at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you think all of that directed you toward the ER to some extent? I do. You know, I always say I feel like I was groomed to work in the ER. Now, there, there are so many ways I recognize, so many ways to help people. To, there's, there's nothing unique about medicine in that way. Um, you know, to be a store clerk, work in sanitation, all of these can be a calling. Now, I feel I was groomed for emergency medicine in many ways because when I was growing up, there could be violence at any time. And I just, I just never knew what was gonna happen. I knew that I had a snapshot and then I had to make a decision in that moment. Is it, are we going to get through this? Or we maybe not, and we have to take action right now. Or is it really kind of a non-event and I just have to stay vigilant? And those are the same skills that I use in the emergency department um, that have directly transferred. And I knew what it was like to grow up traumatized and when people come into the emergency department whether or not it's an actual life threat there's usually so much fear so much anxiety and i wanted to be part of allaying some of that to the extent that's possible you know in reading your book too i mean i kept i've been thinking a lot about resilience recently because you know of what's been going on mm. also being a bookseller we've had to be completely oh, yeah. resilient in order to keep going and to to make ourselves keep going. And you did have such a difficult childhood in the home where you were raised. From where does that resilience, do you think, come from within yourself? That's a good question, because um, I know that resilience can be cultivated, of course. But when we think about, when I think about when I was young and what got me through those times, there, there had to be something innate. And I do reference, I reference when I was young, um, around seven years old, and I was just playing with some toys. And okay, I heard this voice, it was a spiritual experience. And no one was there, I was alone. And it was one of the few quiet times that I remember where it was peaceful. There was no chaos, no drama, no issues. And I was just peacefully playing. And I heard a message that says, you're, you're going to be okay. You're going to survive. Your family, and when I say that, I was 
referring to my mother, brother, and sister, your family are going to survive, which sounds so simple. But when you're in that kind of situation, it was, there was no guarantee. And it was the only message I ever needed to know, wanted to know. And I received that message. And, and then the other part of it was, and you have to be, because you're going to go on to help many people. And I swear to you that it was that message at that time. I mean, it was so crystal clear that helped buttress me and get me through. So it became sort of the mantra, right? Every time, yeah. every time you were insecure, you would think about that. Right. It's going to be okay and I can do this. And yeah, it was helpful. You know, I was telling you earlier, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I was telling you, my, my mom, who is suffering a little bit from dementia, mm-hmm. when she gets confused and she gets frightened, the thing that calms her down is I just tell her she's going to be safe. Yeah. You know, I give her my phone number and I say, just call me. You know, you're going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And I think whether you're old or you're young or you're in between, that right. sense of the world being out of control can be so profound that we need to have something underneath us. Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise it just goes, goes off kilter. Right, what a right. great story. So, right. And the message, you know, and, and along that, those lines, the message wasn't, this is going to be easy, but that you'll survive. Right. right. And so that made you realize that there was work to be done, but that right. whatever work it was, you would be able to do it. Now tell me something about the emergency room, because I guess for about, I don't know, eight years or so, I was my my father's patient advocate. And I would always, I knew more about the emergency room. Uh, at one point, the nurse turned to me and said, are you a doctor? There was one thing, and this was before the pandemic, and that is that if I wasn't there, you know, he would have just been seen as an old guy who was kind of on his way out. And what I kept doing is I would keep a, I would keep a video of him talking to me when he was younger, that this is the guy who you're dealing with. How much of that, I mean, you are one of the most empathetic people when I read your book about being in that room, but what were you up against in the emergency room in terms of that kind of attitude? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really challenging and increasingly so. I mean, apart from the pandemic, which has changed everything because currently, and we take it day by day, but there are no visitors. So, oh my gosh, it is, it's so difficult because there are times when you have someone who, for example, who's elderly, like you're saying, they may not know all their history and they may not have the self-possession to be able to advocate for themselves. And now they're in a position where they are alone there and we can't have anyone come in for safety reasons. And so, so then the question is, okay, well, how much time do we have to spend to call different family members and keep having these conversations back and forth? It is, it is a real challenge. And then add to that pre-pandemic or even now, the fact that it is so fast moving and we have to constantly be juggling different patients and multitasking. So it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's not a system. When I say system, I mean the American medical system. It's not a system that prioritizes communication and collaboration or all these things that are critical for good care. It really prioritizes billing. 
so so it's a challenge it's very and, you know that was what was so clear to me i mean i'm yeah you know i clearly and so did my dad we had a kind of privilege that allowed us to sort of fight for whatever we needed to happen yeah. I, I kept thinking whoa what if you know you have no health care i know you have no ability to communicate with any of your caregivers and what if you're actually somewhat you know what if you're you're intimidated by the entire exactly process? you're intimidated you don't know your way around right. and you're, you're shunted off to the side it is you know it it's and that's often the case and that yeah. gets at you know all just the the layers of disparity and care i mean that is that is that is another potential positive of this pandemic that it's laying bare all these problems so i, I look at it as I'm hoping this is an opportunity for us to address and reconfigure what American healthcare is. Everyone deserves care. We can't have a pandemic where there's record unemployment and now people don't have access to care. <laughs> right? Like it's showing how important communication is and all these things that are considered not billable. These, these are critical for care and wellness. And so my hope is, I always try not to, I talk about difficult subjects. You know, my, my memoir is not easy. The essays I write are not easy, fun beach reads, but I speak about them because I, I feel there's such opportunity just to, to choose better, do better, be better. Well, you know, I, I've always appreciated you watching you on some of these uh, cable talk shows and mm -hmm. you do such a great job expressing what I think is one of the biggest inequities that we have. And, mm -hmm. and, it's the one that is used as a political football so much, but it's it's so very clear that a basic right ought to be the right to have health care. I mean, yeah. every other every other country in the world has it, and right. for us not to have it is absolutely an abomination. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we, we we'll never think of ourselves as a, a first world country until we really get that. Agreed. Um, so so how are you juggling all this? <laughs> Now you've got this responsibility of having to sort of like, you know, talk about the political ramifications when you started out writing a very personal book about yeah. your own about your own life. So is there an added layer now that you're feeling? Um, you there's, there's an added layer that I welcome and I love because for me it's all connected. This is it's you're all healing. right. You're healing the entire system. Exactly. And for, for me, it can be no other way. So, so I love it. I embrace it. I welcome it. I'm energized by it. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how to fit in, when to buy groceries and like <laughs> how I'm going to make my meals, but you know, I'll sort yeah, it out. Still, you're still living in Philadelphia, right? Are you yes. in Philly? Mm -hmm. I'm still in Philly. I don't practice clinically in Philadelphia anymore. I practice clinically in Jersey now, but still there. And so I have a commute, but the good thing about my commute is that I can listen to like Eckhart Tolle on my drive in and <laughs> catch up on news and events on the drive out. <laughs> so you grew up in Washington, D.C., right? Mm -hmm. And you grew up, uh, you know, as, I, as we said, in a tough family. What, what did your father do? What, oh, what work was he doing? A physician. He was a physician. That's mm -hmm. right. And, and your mom? It, it kind of varied uh like she, she did real estate for a while she was going to go to law school but then didn't finish 
and then like did more real estate and then did nothing like helped my um my father had his own businesses around healthcare and she worked with those businesses and then you escaped and you went to school yes mm -hmm. And did you study, did you know medicine was where you were going to be from the beginning? Yeah, I did decide on medicine early. I mean, not in, when I say early, it, in un undergrad, that's ultimately where I landed. And early on, I figured that's what it would be. You know, like I started Future Doctors of America Club while I was <laughs> at National Cathedral School. So, so I figured that ultimately would be it. I mean, I, I tried to keep an open mind and, you know, maybe architect or lawyer, but, but I knew pretty early on. And then by the time I was an undergrad, the decision was final. And, and when, now I have to ask you this, because yeah. you write like a very, even though this is your first book, it's an extremely maturely written book. Thank so you. when did the writing, when, when did writing, the writing bug happen? Did you, were you always a writer? Did you write as a kid? Was that something that was always there? You know, I, I would keep a journal as a child and I would write poetry in my journal, but not really. I mean, I, I had an inclination towards it, but you know, I went off to college, I was a psychology major and I did pre-med and, and then I went to medical school. And so it was after graduation from residency that and in in residency, I started having these ideas that I wanted to capture some of these stories and talk about them, but I just let it go. And so after after graduation, and when I was an attending physician, the, it came back to me this idea, and and then I started writing, and I felt like apart apart from undergrad, I didn't have any formal training in writing otherwise. My schedule didn't allow me to, to sign up for a literature class, and that, that's what my initial intention was, but I, but I couldn't with the shift work in the ER. So I hired an editor to work on my writing, and I said, you know what, I might as well just write my book. So, and, and the good thing about working with like my writing tutor was that it, I mean, I'm really goal-oriented. So it kept me on schedule. So I had someone I, I had to be accountable to, and I said, okay, this chapter, I have to get to you this day. And so that kept me on schedule to do it. But honestly, I, in many ways, I, f I feel self-taught in many ways. <laughs> no, well, it's, which is, which is great. I mean, you know, there's a big debate going on whether or not one has to be taught, you know. And, and right, right. You really, you did something so beautiful in this. Uh, and also the structure you know, I read, I've read Atul Gawande and I've read a lot of uh, other books in which it's done by cases. But mm. I think the beauty of what you did is that you wove yourself throughout all of this. And that idea of, of talking about each patient through the prism of your own hurt, mm -hmm. in a way. And what you bring to it well, is, is the really the remarkable aspect of this. So I'm going to ask you a kind of an odd question. Tell me about, tell me the patient that you've written about that you were most skeptical about and the one that you came and, and then who you came to really understand and who brought you more understanding about yourself. I'm going to have to say the one that comes to mind that I was most skeptical about was Mr. Spano, who had the significant infection in his leg. Right. Um, and he, he was scared. He was terrified. He did seem critically ill. 
<clears throat> at the time he came in, um, I had to st stop what I was doing and um, start intravenous antibiotics, evaluate the wound. I didn't know if antibiotics would be enough or he would need to be taken to the emergency, uh, the operating room to have the wound cleaned out by a surgeon. So I had surgery involved early. And as I was treating him in the ER with the fluids and um, the antibiotics, he was getting better. And then all of a sudden his concerns about dying and like begging for us to save his life went away. Um, and he like tore off his bandages and threw bloody gloves on the floor and just left. And it was, it was frustrating. And I had to ask myself in the moment, I was like, why, why am I getting offended and frustrated? True enough. Like I reorganized my schedule and prioritized him over some other patients, but this wasn't personal like this is his body his life he was going through a lot i mean there was some court cases the court case he had to address he had a substance abuse issue which is how the infection happened in the first place so what his decisions around his care had nothing to do with me it had to do with him and how he felt about himself and if he felt worthy to be cared for if he if somebody's not dedicated to their healing for themselves and they're not going to allow it from someone else. So it was, for me, a powerful moment to, to recognize in myself that I, I need to look at to what extent other people's behavior affects me. Like if I'm really fine and healthy and stable, it wouldn't. I did the best I could. I wish him the best. And he's allowed to make his own decisions. So it yeah. was a powerful moment for me. Oh, my God, there was another one, too. So when I was taking care of um, a man who, when I looked at the screen and there was a violent behavior report, it was middle of the night, it was quiet, I was having the opportunity, I thought, to catch up on some charting documentation. And it said, you know, somebody had just checked in with a hemorrhoid, fine, hemorrhoid, stable vital signs, but then an alert came up on the screen and the alert was, that he had an episode of violence where he sexually assaulted the female doctor who was taking care of him. And while she is trying to treat his infection and cutting an infection out of his neck, he sexually assaults her. And then the note casually says, well, she put down her instrument and, and then it was completed by a male physician. And it made me so angry, A, that he did this to her, but also be just the casual way it was written about. And it made me wonder, well, what did the institution do about this? Like, was any action taken? How was she protected? And now he's back with what looks like something minor. So I went and I made coffee. I was like, I'll get to him. He's fine. He's stable. The vitals are fine. It's a hemorrhoid, not a big deal. I have time to make my coffee. I took a couple of minutes to make the coffee. And then I thought to myself, well, it might be okay for him to wait, but other people might come in. So let me just finish this and see him and get him out of here. Well, when I saw him, it wasn't a hemorrhoid at all. And he had an incarcerated hernia. I mean, fancy term for a, a complication that happens with a hernia that is a surgical emergency and it's life threatening. And while he was okay right now, if we didn't take care of this, he would die most assuredly. So a change happened. Um, we did take care of him. Um, I called the surgeons. And at the end of it, I, I reflected on the fact that 
I didn't know him. Now, certainly what he did was heinous and he should be held accountable for that. And the institution se seemingly to not take it seriously, that needs to be addressed too. But my job in the moment was to take care of him. And I'm sure those two to three minutes for me to take my coffee felt like an eternity to him. And so I had to look at that also, that there is a time and a place and that in that moment, my judgment clouded my behavior in a way that's not in alignment with who I feel I am. So that too was, was, a, was a teachable moment for me. Yeah, the idea that, you know, you have to, you have to look at the patient, right. analyze the patient in and of himself or herself. Right. And not, not get distracted. You know, it, it's, it's also, it's my, my, my father was the worst patient in the world. And, and he got to know the ER people really well. And you could tell that many of them didn't want to be anywhere near him mm. <laughs> when he mm. came in. And I would always be the one, okay, he's really a nice guy. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't hold it against him. He's just, you know, he's just cranky. But, yeah. Right. I mean, that is a very, very difficult thing. But so, so you've gone through this, you wrote this book, it was cathartic and you were able to really, really kind of, you know, heal yourself by understanding how to heal others. So if you can think back, you, you mentioned when you were a little girl, you mm -hmm. had an almost out of body experience and had this idea that everything was going to be all right. What place do you go to now? So now there's still certain people I speak to. I don't know. I just, I just started calling them like my inner circle <laughs> where it's really cathartic to speak to certain people, whether it's I don't know, my, my aunt or certain friends who they might be family or friends or even, but sometimes they're like spiritual coaches as well. So that is very helpful to me now. Um, then I, for me, yoga is huge. The physical practice of yoga um, has been very healing. And I've been doing that now since I graduated residency. So I don't know, we're going on eight, eight, eight or nine. Well, there was a little delay, but eight, eight or nine years since I didn't start it immediately after residency. And that for me is not only the, it's like a moving meditation. Yes, it's good for for physical fitness, but, but for mental and spiritual for me as well. Or I'll go on walks and that's walking meditation for me. I always bring up, I, I, I don't see a therapist now, but in the past I have, and I, I take care of so many people dealing with trauma of all kinds. And I know that in, in certain communities, therapy can be stigmatized. So I always bring out the fact that I think there's a role for it and can be very helpful and supportive for people. Um, so that can yeah. be good also. Most definitely. And so what's next with your writing? Do you have an, another idea? What's, first of all, is there anything else happening with the book? Same with uh, the book, publicity and this virtual tour <laughs> is happening. You know, there's some, I'm a little superstitious, so we'll see. I mean, there's been some interesting conversations around like film and TV, which I love art and I love creating. So the idea of this other medium, taking it there just sounds so fun to me. 
So I would yeah. love to do that. You and then, yeah. And then of course I want to do more writing. And um, I have a couple ideas around children's books, but I, but I, I know I want to do another, at least one other adult um, book. I just, that has not yet come to me. I'll be honest about that. I'm waiting for that inspiration to come, but I had a couple stories. It, we talked about writing and where did this come from? Since I still consider myself a novice and, and new to this path, I, it was a personal test for me to write the last two essays, the, the one since the book, the one that was in um, medium around coronavirus. Yeah, that, that was a great essay. Yeah, thank you. And then most recently, last week, time flies. Um, yeah, it was last week. I had a piece in the cut, um, which is also a new essay. And whenever I write, I have to wait for the inspiration to come. Like I can't, I can't rush it. I can't really plan it. I can't put myself on a schedule. When it comes, then I do it. But I also was interested to see how it would come out because I wanted to prove to myself that I could write and it wasn't just a fluke. <laughs> so, so I was really happy with how those turned out. <laughs> As a long time bookseller, I can tell you, this is no fluke. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to be hearing your voice for many, many, many years to come. And would you, would you read a little bit? Oh, sure. From the book so mm -hmm. that people can hear, hear your voice? Yes. And I will read um, part from the introduction. As I cradled my patient's head in my hands, I looked past the watery wells of his eyes. For a moment, I didn't notice the blood that ran in rivulets across my gloves as it poured from his scalp, or the bits of gray and white brain matter that dotted the sheets, the beeping of the monitors around me, the popping sound of IV catheter tops being flicked off by the nurses, the screeching of wheels as equipment was dragged across linoleum floors, the nurses and techs yelling directions at one another, the stifled gasps erupting from the two medical students on their first ER shift, attempting in vain not to be startled. All were drowned out as I stood over this young man and tried to ease his agitation. This is the part of being a doctor that medical school doesn't cover, that case reviews don't prepare you for. This is the part you can't really know until you're in the moment. You are the person responsible for saving the human life that slowly slips through your fingers while silently begging for final redemption under the demanding fluorescent lights. Hmm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Michelle, thank you for all you do for all of us. Yeah. It really, it's remarkable. And thank you for being on The Literary Life. Thank you. It's um, Michelle Harper, the book is The Beauty in Breaking. And uh, it's a memoir, but if you want any, some of the other work that she, uh, that Michelle talked about is available on her website, which is a really great website. I think it's michelleharper.com. Yep, it's super easy. Michelle Harper, 1L. <laughs> yes, 1L, and you can read all the different writings that she's got. Again, thank you, Michelle. Thank you. So fun hanging out with you. Thank you so much. <laughs>